Everywhere he went, people challenged him. They questioned his ideology, trolled him, called him ugly names. But he never took the bait, never raised his voice, refused to retaliate because he believed he could change the world by turning the other cheek. been waiting 16 years for that right there that we just experienced, yeah? Next year, I'm thinking River Dancers. That's where I'm at, Brad. Next year, River Dancers. Well, welcome to uh, Crossroads Church. Good to have you here today. If you are brand new with us, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And uh, today I get to open up the Word of God with you as we get to walk through uh, what God has for us today. We are actually starting a brand new sermon series called He Gets Us, which is based on the commercials that are really kind of taking over our culture uh, that are about Jesus. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've seen them everywhere. Uh, they are in sporting events. They made it into the Super Bowl. They're played during primetime dramas. They're in between the YouTube videos. I mean, they are literally everywhere. And the premise of the commercials and really the premise of this series is that Jesus gets us. That the things that we experience in this world, whether it be, you know, uh, outrage, anxiety, heartbreak, dealing with people who are different than us, that when we open up the gospels and begin to read about the life of Jesus, that we see that he is like us, that he gets us. And really he's the only one who can. And so today we're starting the sermon series uh, with the topic of outrage, outrage. Now, when it comes to outrage, uh, the reality is, is that it wasn't too long ago, maybe just 15, 20 years ago, when it came to people and their inability to control their anger, that really in culture, it was kind of a laughing matter. I mean, you had like late show hosts of, you know, eras past like Jay Leno and David Letterman who would regularly make fun of, of road rage and, you know, poke fun at, at people with anger issues. In 2003, you had a movie by Adam Sandler called Anger Management, which was a comedy all about, you know, someone who couldn't control their anger. But in the last, I would say, decade or so, things have changed pretty significantly, haven't they? Like today, when it comes to the inability for one to uh, be under control, that is no longer, it's no longer a laughing matter. A recent New York Times documentary tells the story of what they call the online outrage machine that can, with just a small bit of misinformation and a viral hashtag, actually you know, incite a whole social media mob that can ruin the lives of people. On college campuses, we have lost the ability to interact reasonably with opposing viewpoints that many teachers and speakers walk on eggshells as they present material uh, fearful of, you know, students who will ultimately, you know, choose to tune out because they no longer value opposing views. That when it comes to the public discourse of this country, that we have become a culture that is on fire. That our consistent state of unhinged political uh, outrage makes us unable to, to process details clearly. It, 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 you know, it causes us not to walk in ways that are discerning. That because of the outrage, when it comes to our political system, oftentimes we're not able to see with eyes that are clear and just. And it's not like, you know, this outrage just is happening in the world outside. I mean, families, and we've witnessed the, the effects of outrage in families and in the church. 
I mean, how many marriages have ended because of, of wrath and because of, you know, one's inability to, to uh, not quarrel or to not hold resentment? How many children have been, have been really put in places of, of where they have been traumatized because their parents could not control their tongues? How many churches have been torn apart because of the so-called worship wars that happen in churches? Like, like the truth of the matter is we got issues that we are easily offended and oftentimes we are outraged at the world that we're a part of. I mean, this even hits, you know, close to home just in the last couple of weeks. In just the last couple of weeks, these very ads, He Gets Us, have been a source of outrage in our culture. You have on one side Christians who are upset that the commercials don't far, go far enough in sharing the gospel. And on the other side, you have people offended, totally offended by who paid for these ads. And then you have a whole segment of people who are upset because somehow Jesus made it into this secular space of sports in American culture. Just last Sunday, Chris Rock dropped his Netflix special, new comedy special called Selective Outrage, where he fans the flames of the infamous Oscar slap that he experienced a year ago. Even locally, locally, we can't get away from this. I mean, if you're a sports fan here in Denver, then you know a couple of weeks ago, ESPN talking head Kendrick Perkins, uh, you know, took the annual NBA MVP debate that is, you know, this time of year, the fun debate that happens this time of year around the MVP, and he turned it into like a national fight club by insinuating that no Nuggets superstar joker, uh, Nikola Jokic, uh, won his MVPs and that because of his win of MVPs that this was somehow racial discrimination. I mean, we don't have to look very far in our culture to realize that outrage has become the voice of our culture. But if, what if I was to tell you today that there's actually a better way, that there's a, a different perspective, a better way to handle the outrage that we experience in this society than the way that culture has taught us to deal with it. In fact, Jesus understood the outrage that we feel, and he actually believed that there was a better way. That oftentimes when Jesus spoke and taught, he would teach about how the kingdom of God transcended normal human interaction. And the way that he would set up his teaching is he would say something like this. He would, he would walk into a place and he would say, you have heard it said. And when he said that, what he, was, what he would then begin to explain is that you've heard it said, and he would explain how society and culture really deal with, you know, a particular issue. And then he would follow it with these words, but I tell you, but I tell you. And as he would begin to, to speak those words, he began to present a different perspective, a better way of doing things. And so today, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, we're going to look at a significant teaching that Jesus gave in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest source of teaching that we have from Jesus' life. We find it in Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, know that this teaching today from Jesus has the capacity, the potential to ultimately transform the world in which we live in. It has the potential to heal our communities because let's be truthful here, outrage does not solve the problem. Oftentimes, it just makes it worse. Jesus comes in and he says these words, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, he says this, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, there's our words, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you've heard it said that as we live in this world, the way that society teaches you is if you've been wronged, you do wrong back. Someone poke you, you poke them back. They punch, you punch back. That's the way the world lives. You've heard it said that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth kind of worlds. But I say to you, 
Here's our different perspective. Here's our better way. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go two with them. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you've heard that it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, as we set the scene for this, I want you to imagine that we've all been transported back into Jesus' time, and that the way that we make a living is by fishing, that we are fishermen, and that we make a living by going out into the Sea of Galilee and fishing every day for our livelihoods and for our family's livelihood. And one day, while we're out in the Sea of Galilee, while you're out there fishing, you get like the jackpot. Like, like every time you throw your nets into the water, you're just pulling out fish. Like, this is the day that every fisherman like lives for. You're just pulling in fish hand over fist. And as your boat approaches the dock and as you begin to unload the fish into your cart and as your cart begins to go on the road, I mean, your heart is just filled with excitement because you've caught enough fish today to take care of your family for an entire month. That's the blessing of God on you today. And as you're riding on the road, all of a sudden you see before you that a tax collector has set up on the side of the road. And the excitement that you start to feel becomes diminished. You get to the tax collector, you explain to him that this is the biggest catch that you've ever had in your life and that you don't actually have the money on you to pay the taxes that he requires of you on this day. That you you would never have imagined in a million years that you would have caught a catch like this, that you just have your normal amount of money for what you typically catch in an evening. And in that moment, the tax collector, tax collector jumps up on the table, humiliating you. He, he slaps you with his backhand across your face. As your soul starts to fill with outrage, what do you do? How do you respond in that moment? Like in that moment, do you go tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye? Like, you hit me, it's on. Like, we're going. Or do you remember that? Right there are the Roman soldiers, and to lay hands on a tax collector is to lay hands on Rome, and they won't think for a moment to put you down. On top of that, the tax collector not only humiliating you by by slapping your face, but he follows the Roman rule, and that is if you can't pay for all of your fish, you get none of it, and you watch the soldiers dump all of your month's livelihood on the road to rot. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? See, that's the very scenario that Jesus is painting in this teaching. And oftentimes when we read the teaching of Jesus here, we interpret this as what Jesus is calling us to do is to simply roll over. That we're just to allow people to walk all over us. And honestly, historically, that's the way that this passage has been interpreted for for centuries. But the interesting thing is is that that when it comes to this, that Jesus' command here is that when you're wronged, when you've been hurt, offended, when you're, when you're feeling, when your soul's filling with outrage, that your response is not to do nothing. In fact, it's far from it. What Jesus says that we are called to do is what in the original language is referred to as agape, that we are to show love, that what Jesus says is that when you're up against your enemies in this world, 
When you're up against your enemies in this world, the response is not outrage, but rather outrageous kindness. You love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. You do good to those who mean to harm you. Now, when you hear Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good for those who bring harm onto you, if you think, if you think that was outrageous in our day, <laughs> like it was, it was extremely outrageous in Jesus' day. It was extremely countercultural in Jesus' day. And the reason that it was so countercultural is because in Jesus' day, there was this huge debate that raged around this topic that really came from Leviticus chapter 19. Now, if you're unfamiliar, Leviticus is the book of the law that we find in the Old Testament. It was written by the prophet Moses. And in chapter 19, Moses writes out the rules concerning what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the great debate that raged was, who is your neighbor? Like, who is your neighbor? And the reason that they worked so hard to, of wanting to know who their neighbor was is because, by the law, they were required to love their neighbor. And so as they read through Leviticus 19, they felt like it was a little gray, right? Like we're not really sure. It doesn't really define who our neighbor is here. And so what happened over time is that the religious leaders, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, begin to interpret Leviticus 19 this way, that you are to love your neighbor and you are to hate your enemy. That you are to love your neighbor, that you are to hate your enemy. Now, if you go home this afternoon and open up your Bibles and read Leviticus 19, interesting enough, you will never find the phrase, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's not anywhere in there. The only thing that you will read is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the debate with the rabbis was, who is your neighbor? Well, if you read the greater context of Leviticus 19, you'll see phrases like these phrases that you shall not go around slandering your people, that you shall not hate your brother, that you shall not hold a grudge or take vengeance against the sons of your people. Now, the thing that you probably notice in all of these is the word your, and that's what the Jewish people recognized as well. And so they started to interpret this. The rabbis, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they started interpreting Leviticus 19 is that your neighbor is ultimately your people. And so for a Jewish person, your neighbor is Jewish people, which means Roman soldiers, they don't count. Tax collectors who, you know, were treasonous to, to Israel and went to work for Rome, they don't count. People who don't look like you, they don't count. People who don't believe like you, they don't count. That your people, that your neighbor is your people. Now, I bring this to you, not just because, like, it's interesting, but because the reality is, is that the Jewish people had been under occupation for 500 of the last 600 years. For 500 of 600 years, they were not able to walk in freedom. For 100 years, they were. And the people who took away their freedom, who came and conquered them, was the Roman Empire. So imagine for a moment... That for most of, you know, your recent history, for 500 years of your history, that you had been occupied, that you had been under persecution, and then all of a sudden you had found your freedom and you experienced what it felt like to be independent again, to, to walk in freedom, and then suddenly the ruthless Roman Empire comes in and takes that freedom again. All of a sudden this becomes an important question, doesn't it? God, who are you asking me to love here? What are, you, what are you asking me to do? What does it look like to walk with you in this? Like, like this is an extremely important question. 
And Jesus comes on the scene and he takes Leviticus 19, something that all the people thought that they knew, that they, that they really had this one under control, and he expands it into something that absolutely wrecks them. He says, when it comes to Leviticus chapter 19, this chapter isn't about who you're supposed to love and who you're supposed to hate. In fact, when it comes to Leviticus 19, it's about an upside down kingdom ethic that places no boundaries on love. That Jesus is setting the debate, is settling the debate, and he says that the way of God is that you are to love your neighbors and newsflash, and you're also supposed to love your enemies. Now, Outside of Leviticus chapter 19, as Western thinkers, this gets a little bit complicated for us because in English, we kind of have a hard time defining the word love, don't we? That in our culture, in our English culture, love means so much, it is so big, it is so broad that it comes to really mean nothing at all. In fact, when we come to the word love in the English language, we use it three or four different ways, don't we? First, we use it to communicate deep affection, like I love my wife. That is to say, I have deep affection for my wife. The second way that we use love is to communicate joy, like I love sitting down and watching Top Gun. What I mean by that is that I enjoy, there's great joy in me watching Tom Cruise play Tom Cruise, right? The third way that we use love is to indicate preference. I could say that um, I love Kentucky basketball. That is, is that I prefer Kentucky basketball to every other college basketball program out there, particularly the lousy ones like Louisville, Tennessee, and Duke, right? Like, like that, oh, Kansas too, okay, Kansas too. So like we communicate preference. And when we sit back and we try to define what love is, oftentimes we define it as like an emotion that's kind of squishy, right? It's like rainbows and kittens and, and warm fuzzies that fill our soul. That's, that's what love is. And so it gets a little complicated for us English speakers because we look at this and we say, what, what's Jesus actually saying here? Like, am I to have warm fuzzies for the people who offend me, who have abused me, for those who have hurt me, who have harmed me, who have, who have stolen from me? Or is our understanding of love here interfering with what Jesus is actually calling us to be about? See, the way to make sense of all of this is to understand agape. That agape is the ancient Greek word, and it wasn't just defined as an emotion, but rather an attitude that leads to an action. It's not just an emotion, but rather an attitude that leads to an action. It's us choosing to love when we know that there is no expectation that the person who we are extending our love, our agape to, will return that in any way. For a moment, just put this in the context of how God initially responds to us or to our indifference, to our negligence, to our hostility, to our sin. That God chooses to see people as beloved, period. That God chooses to see all people as beloved. And it leads to mercy. It leads to his generosity. It leads to his kindness. And this isn't based on whether people like God. It's not based on whether people love God. It's not based on whether people follow God or not. It's not even based on whether people behave the way that God thinks they ought to behave. It's not based on their actions. That God chooses to agape you and it leads, it leads to outrageous kindness in your life. Now, I know that as we go through this, for some of you, you're like, yeah, Matt, I'm not sure that's how it works. I'm not buying what you're selling. So let's just go to the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, 45, he says this. For he, that's God, 
makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, Jesus is going, hey, when it comes to God's blessing of the sun, the warmth it provides, the life that it brings, does the sun just shine on those who are righteous, on those who are good, on those who follow God, on those who love God, on those who, who, whose actions are God-honoring? To which we go, no, that's, that's ludicrous. The blessing of the sun falls both on the good and the evil. Jesus goes, okay. When the rains fall from the heavens, when God opens up the heavens and the rains fall on your lands, do the rains fall only, only on the just, only those who are walking in righteousness? No. Then when the rains fall, they, they fall on the, on the just and the unjust. And Jesus goes, that's exactly right. He says, look, God chooses to look at all people in a certain way. That he chooses to look at all people as image bearers, made in the image of God, and he chooses to look at them as beloved, period. They are going to screw up. They're going to mess up. They're going to do some things that are terrible. They're going to do some unspeakable things, but God is going to choose to agape them. When God could choose outrage, he chooses not to. Instead, he chooses outrageous kindness on their behalf. And Jesus turning this around to the Jewish people who, are, who, who take themselves as God-fearing individuals, and he looks at them and he says, you do not have the right, you do not have the authority to treat people as unloved when your God treats them as loved. And every single one of us, as we hear this teaching of Jesus, go, time out. <laughs> like, Jesus, if you knew me, like, I'd be the exception. I mean, come on, what if your story is devastating? What if just this week you found out that your wife was cheating on you? And you're dealing here today, this morning, with the emotional agony. And to come and to walk into this place and hear Jesus say, look, you're to pray for her, you're to love her, you're to do good to her. Man, that feels, that feels awful, right? I mean, that feels so callous to hear those words right now. Maybe it's a best friend who lied to you or lied about you. Maybe it's someone that you admired, a Christian, a hero of yours. And they, they did you dirty. In fact, in fact, they weren't who they pretended to be. Maybe there's someone who, who didn't pay you what they owed you and they put you up in a, in a tough spot. Maybe someone broke a promise to you. Maybe someone took advantage of you and used you for their own benefit. Maybe, and unfortunately for many of you, there was somebody in your life who loved you, who should have been there to guard you and protect you. And instead of protecting and loving you, they hurt you. We look at our stories and we go, go off. Jesus, I'll pray for my enemies. And we break out Psalm 109, let God cause looting in their houses, seize everything. Let no one be kind to them, blot them off the earth. Pray for them, Jesus. Jesus, being the master teacher, knows the struggle that we're going to have with this. Which is why he puts these words in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward is that really to you? I mean, don't even tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? I mean, we read these two verses 2,000 years later, and we do not even realize how scandalous these verses are. For Jesus to elevate the tax collector, the tax collector was was unimaginable 
in the Jewish time. See, when it came to Jewish culture, the tax collector was special. And not like special as in great, but like special like you couldn't get any worse than a tax collector special. Like when it came to Jewish people, there were two types of bad people in Jewish culture. The first were sinners. Those were people, you know, who cursed, who were in all the wrong places, slept in all the wrong places, did all the wrong things. Basically were the antithesis of what the people of Israel were supposed to be about. Those were sinners. And then you had tax collectors on the rung below them. And tax collectors were Jewish people who decided that they were going to go work for the Roman Empire in order to collect taxes. And what the tax collectors would do is that they would get rich by exhorting people, charging them more for their taxes, becoming rich off the backs of their own people, and Rome backed them every step of the way. To be a tax collector was to be a traitor in the eyes of Jews. They hated them. And Jesus looks at the Jewish people and he goes, even the people that you despise do this. Even the people that you can't stand, don't they love the people in their circle? Love the people who who do good to them, love their family? I mean, they're pretty good at this agape thing, wouldn't you say? And Jesus looks at these Jewish people and he says, nobody has a problem showing outrageous kindness to those who love them. But that's not really the issue, is it? The issue, Jesus says, is that we love people in our group and oftentimes we hate the people or are moved with outrage to the people who are outside our group. And he says, listen up, listen up, that God's kingdom is built on a better way than society has taught you to function. That just in case you're still missing what that looks like, your heavenly father is outrageously kind to the ungrateful, even the evil. And out of those words, he gives us this one commandment. He gives us this expectation that just rattles our world. In verse 48, he says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, to which we go, I'm out. Like if that's the expectation, like how, like perfect? Jesus, there's no way that I can live up to being perfect like God is perfect. But when it comes to this word perfect in the New Testament, it actually means to be mature or to be whole. That unlike God the Father, we are not without blemish, but we can be mature in how we treat others. Here's what Jesus is getting at. That when you and I intentionally step over the relational divide and choose agape as an attitude and perform an act of kindness to those who are outside our circle, to those of who hate us, and let's just be honest, to those who we're not real fond of either. When we go against the grain of every intuition that is a part of our fallen humanity and choose compassion and benevolence, Jesus says, you are never more like God than you are in that moment. When you choose to look at your enemies, to pray for your enemies, to do good to your enemies, Jesus says you are never more like God than you are in that moment. There is something about love, about agape, not the rainbows and kittens and, you know, warm feelings, but agape, where we choose to treat all people with the dignity that God treats them with, regardless of their behavior, regardless of what they've done to others, regardless of what they've done to you and to me, and do loving acts of kindness. When we do this, Jesus says that we are participating in the very heartbeat of God. It's what it is to live and to experience the essence of God in our lives. It's what it means to be human, to be fully human, by connecting deeply with our creator. And the only reason that Jesus could say this is because he knew 
because he knew the weight of hate, that he had experienced the pain of mistreatments, that he gets us like no one ever else could. See, in Luke 22, we read about Jesus' betrayal of Jesus. And after Judas betrays Jesus, there's a mob that comes after Jesus. They're coming with eyes of hate. They're coming with swords and clubs. They're coming ready to abuse. And I want you to pay attention to the difference, the way the disciples handle it and the way that Jesus handles it. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Like the disciples in this moment are like, Jesus, we're ready. Is this the time we fight? Like, are we ready to go? And as they're discussing this, Peter, he starts swinging his sword like a madman, and he strikes the servant of the high priest, that's the big dog, and cuts off his right ear. Like, Peter doesn't even think. Peter, Peter just goes into outrage and starts swinging, starts fighting. And look at Jesus' response. He says, no more of this. This has got to stop. And he touched his ear, and he healed the man. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temples and the elders and all who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber? Like, like am I starting a rebellion here? Like, what have I done except to teach the word of God in peace and harmony and try to bring Israel together? What charges do you even have? Like, come on, boys, we've known each other for several years now. Is it really necessary to come after me with swords and clubs? That in this moment where Jesus could be absolutely outraged, he instead chooses outrageous kindness by leaning into the dirt and healing the very man who was coming to get him. So what does this look like for us? How do we put this hard, hard teaching into practice in our real lives? Well, first realize this. To show kindness, it starts with forgiveness. Listen, every single one of us have been hurt. That every single one of us can tell the stories of our, of our woundedness. And, if, and, and, and every single one of us has experienced pain in real, in real ways in our lives. And if we trace the trail of our outrage all the way backwards in the history of our lives, that we will eventually find the wounds that cause all of it in our lives. And the only way to begin to even heal those wounds is to choose forgiveness. Now, if you've been around Crossroads, you know that the way that we define forgiveness is like this, is that forgiveness is choosing that the person who has harmed you does not owe me anymore. The person who has hurt me does not owe me anymore. The forgiveness is, is I have decided, despite what you've done to me, despite what you've done to others, you know, despite you offended me, whatever it may be, that I make the decision that you don't owe me anymore. That you don't owe me anymore. Forgiveness simply means that I'm not going to hold your sin over your head. I'm not, not going to hold a grudge over you anymore. Listen, that is outrageous kindness. Now, anytime we talk about forgiveness, you need to understand that because you forgive does not mean that there won't be consequences. There probably will be. 
It doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's trust between you and that person again. There may never be trust again between you. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you become best friends and to forgive is to forget. You may never be friends with that person again. Simply forgiveness is simply saying that you don't owe me anymore that you don't owe me anymore. I'm going to let that go because Jesus has agaped me. He has forgiven me. I'm choosing to agape you and forgive you. I think it's this teaching that resonated so deeply within Paul that he wrote these words in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says this, but God shows his love, that's agape. God shows his agape for us that while we were still sinners, the reality is that every single one of us are, are sinners because of our sin, and sin is what hurts God. Sin is our disobedience. Sin is our rebellion. Sin is our sticking our middle finger at God. That, that sin is everything that we do in this life that ultimately brings pain and wounds. God, the creator of the universe. But God showed his love for those people, for us, by sending Jesus to die for every one of us. I mean, who can imagine the unfathomable depth of God's outrageous kindness? I mean, just look at the next verse, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son. I mean, just listen to the language here. Enemies, not only has the sin of our lives created hurt and pain to God, but we've situated ourselves as enemies before God. And God comes in and he sends Jesus on this rescue mission into earth, on this mission of outrageous kindness, not in outrage to put down the enemies, but rather to die for them. It leads Paul to go, how much more then? If you're reconciled as enemies, shall you be saved in your life? Like, like if this is the way that God treats his enemies, what does, he, what does it look like for him to treat his friends? I mean, we're talking about an outrageously kind God here. Outrageously kind. Which leads us to this. To be kind, we must know kindness. See, only people who have received real kindness from God have any real motivation to show kindness to others. If you haven't experienced the kindness of God, if you haven't experienced the type of compassion and benevolence and generosity and mercy and grace that Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount, that you will never be able to extend that kind of kindness to others. In fact, not only will you not be able to extend that kindness, but you will fight it your entire life. You will resist it your entire life. The only thing that makes sense out of this passage that Matthew writes about in chapter 5 of his gospel, the only thing that makes sense of Jesus' teaching here is that we are a people who have experienced this kind of kindness from God. And so as we walk into the worlds, we can show this outrageous kindness to those in our lives, to both our neighbors and to our enemies, to those who love us and to those who hate us, that the beginning of freedom begins when we become the recipients of God's outrageous kindness of Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins, in that moment, God shows agape, forgiving us once for all, restoring us. And it happens when we trust in Jesus. So if you're here today and you've never taken the opportunity to do that, Text line's back on the screen, 720-513-1933.
You can text the name of Jesus, and we would love to walk through with you what it looks like to experience God in this way, to make him the Lord and Savior of your life. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to teachings like this and moments like this, and admittedly, these are very difficult words that you've spoken to us. Lord, in our fallen humanity, the way that society and culture has taught us to react is very much eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Lord, where we're constantly looking to one-up the person who's, who's caused harm in our lives, that we're constantly looking to, to take vengeance on those who have wronged us. Lord, where we walk through life looking to be offended by the things that people say who don't always yeah. You can't fight the, the Experiencing the, the pain of mistreatment, feeling the weight of others hating you in life. And yet, in that greatest moment of your life, you did not just preach this message, but you got down on your knees and you healed the very enemy that was coming after you. And then beyond that, you went to the cross to die for that person, to die for every person here and online. And God, we could spend all day just mining the depths of your outrageous kindness to the just and the unjust, to the righteous and to the evil. Your love truly knows no bounds. And for that, we're grateful. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who don't just hear this teaching and understand it, but, Lord, that we actually walk it out. I pray that every single person here would know your kindness when it comes to the cross, that they would realize that their sin put you there, that you died, that you died to appease the wrath of God so that they could be reconciled to God as children. God, thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We come together remembering today through communion the ultimate example of what it looks like to be kind. In Paul's words, while we were still yet sinners, enemies of God, that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was spilt for us, that in his death we find life. And so today as a family, as a church, we partake together, we eat of the body remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. And with the cup, we remember the spilling of Jesus' blood and the outrageous kindness that he showed so that we might have life. We're gonna sing of our, the goodness of our God in worship. Um, I'm gonna invite everyone in house to go ahead and stand as we sing these songs. If you need prayer, you can make your way over the prayer banner online. You can click the button. We'd love to pray for you, but let's sing together the goodness of our God. <laughs>